0: Finance. It seems hard to learn, but is it really? Wall Street likes to overcomplicate everything money related, confusing a lot of people. Join us on this podcast as we help break down the world of money for you to understand from a relatable perspective. This is Finance Simplified. Hey everyone, how's it going? My name is Rohan and I'm super excited to welcome you to today's episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fans. We have an amazing guest today, Dr. Harold James, who is an economic historian and professor of European Studies, History, and International Affairs at Princeton University. We'll be simplifying a topic that you may have heard quite a bit about lately on the news, Britain's exit from the EU, also known as Brexit. So, our guest, in addition to being a professor, used to be a fellow at Cambridge University's prestigious Peterhouse College. He has also won the Helmut Schmidt Prize for Economic History and the Ludwig Erhard Prize for Writing About Economics. Needless to say, I'm super excited about our upcoming conversation, so let's just get started. Harold, welcome to the podcast.
1: Very pleased to be with you, Rohan.
0: All right, so I just want to get started with learning more about your background. How did you get interested in teaching economics and economic history and end up at Princeton?
1: I I grew up in Cambridge in England, um, and I uh, started to work in Cambridge University as a student. Uh, in the 1970s, which was a period of extreme economic turbulence with very, very high inflation rates. Uh, so I think there was, there was a natural impetus to be interested in financial and economic history.
0: So it's just kind of that that experience of growing up, right, as you say, in, in a turbulent time in England, economically speaking, uh, exactly. that really got you interested. How did you go from Cambridge to Princeton, though? I'm curious to know.
1: Well, I, I taught in Cambridge, and uh, then I, I thought, I would like to see something different, and I I applied for some jobs in the United States. Uh, They very kindly invited me to come here to Princeton.
0: That's pretty impressive. So I want to get started with Brexit, now that we have your background. I think as Americans, you know, we don't have as good of an idea of what Brexit's all about. I mean, we hear about it in the news, but not many of us really understand the forces at play here. And as students, as young people, the issue of not understanding Brexit is compounded again because... You know, it's not taught at schools. So let's just start with the basics. To understand Brexit, we need to understand what the European Union is and why it formed. So could you explain what those are?
1: The European Union grew out of a previous set of institutions. First of all, the European Economic Community, which started back in the 1950s and 1958. And it, it renamed itself and got a more ambitious purpose in the early 1990s with the Maastricht Treaty as the European Union, which implied a kind of move uh, to some kind of political union in the long distance. Britain had wanted to join the predecessor in the early 1960s, but had been rejected. Uh, General de Gaulle, the French president at the time, uh, vetoed Britain's application. And so Britain only joined 10 years later uh, in 1973. But since then, The British relationship with the European institutions has always been slightly uneasy, slightly at a distance. The UK didn't want to join the European monetary system in the late 1970s when the Europeans moved to closer monetary integration, didn't join the euro, the single currency. It was the big project that was launched also at the Maastricht Treaty, and so Britain was always slightly on the edge of things. And I think that's that's really the background to the decision after the election in 2015 to have a referendum on EU membership.
0: So you just mentioned that Britain didn't adopt the euro. Could you talk a little bit about the eurozone and what that is, and how it applies to the European Union?
1: So in the Maastricht Treaty in the early 90s, uh, so the Treaty was negotiated in 1992 and then ratified over the next year. The Europeans agreed, all the members of what was now the European Union, agreed to have a single currency as long as the countries were qualified by a set of criteria involving their debt levels, their deficit levels, and their inflation level. The only two countries that got an opt out clause in the Maastricht Treaty were Denmark and the United Kingdom. So the British negotiators at the time also made clear that Britain wasn't going to join the Euro. The Euro started working in 2009. A few years later, there were the physical notes and coins introduced. And it seemed to be a great success until the late 2000s. And then in 2010, a debt crisis that looked as if it was a contagious crisis broke out, first in Greece, but then it extended to Portugal to Ireland to Cyprus, and there was a worry that there would be contagion in other countries. And at that moment, I think the UK was also worried that it would be sucked into some kind of fiscal responsibility for dealing with the euro, and the the mood towards Europe became more skeptical.
0: So the euro was adopted by many different countries to sort of facilitate, within the European Union, the the member nations decided, if we have this one currency, it'll be It'll help with free trade. It'll help with all these different facilitations of transactions that'll help us be a more connected coalition of states, right? Well, that's exactly right. So Britain had the opt-out clause, right? And, Indeed. And why why did it have that opt-out clause? What differentiated Britain and Denmark from these other countries in the EU? And does that have ramifications today? I think
1: that's the United Kingdom was worried about the loss of its monetary sovereignty, in other words, the loss of the ability to fix interest rates independently. Denmark, I don't think, was worried so much about that. And indeed, the Danish currency has very, very closely tracked the euro since the beginning. And so, in effect, Denmark is a kind of member of the monetary union. But the UK, they were always worried that they would have a shock that would be different to the European shock. They wanted to be able to respond to it with independent monetary policy.
0: So it's really all about maintaining their their power over their own economy, really, right?
1: And one of the arguments that's put forward very, very frequently by supporters of Brexit is that Britain has to be in control of its own destiny. It has to have a meaningful sovereignty.
0: Yeah, and I think that was one of the, I think it was one of the slogans, right? Is like, take back power, take back power. Let's just kind of get more into, into Brexit. We talked more about the European Union just now, so let's kind of shift over to Brexit. So in, in the most simplest of terms, what is Brexit?
1: Brexit is simply departing from the European Union as it currently exists. It's not clear what the relationship will be after Brexit. Some countries that are not in the European Union are in something called the European Economic Area so that's the case with Norway, for instance, and Norway has very close agreements on all kinds of issues, including the mobility of people, but also the mobility of goods. Then there are other countries in um, Eastern Europe, in the formerly communist world, uh, Ukraine has a kind of trade agreement with the Euro, Turkey has a trade agreement with the European Union. So all kinds of trade agreements are possible, but none of these have been worked out at the moment for the UK. And so the at the moment when we're speaking, this is the beginning of October 2019, the The post-European Union future of the UK is still completely in doubt.
0: Yeah, and it just doesn't, from all the reading I've been doing, it just seems like there's so many different possibilities that no one really knows what's going to happen. They're just throwing out ideas. And I'm curious to know, actually, has this sort of departure from a union ever been done before?
1: No, it really hasn't. I mean, the only thing that would come close to it and, Uh, some people sometimes hold it up as a model, but it's really completely different, is that in the 1970s, Greenland, which was formerly part of Denmark, disconnected from Denmark, and so disconnected also from the European community, the predecessor of the European Union. But it's still, Denmark and uh, Greenland still have a close relationship, and Greenland has trade agreements. It's not a very big country, obviously, either.
0: Yeah, Britain and Greenland don't really seem to be too comparable.
1: There's absolutely no parallel. And indeed, until relatively recently, until 2009, there was no mechanism for getting out of the European Union. It was just assumed to be an ever-closer union. Since then, that was when the Treaty of Lisbon, one of the reform treaties that tried to restructure the European Union in a more rational or more transparent way. Since then, there has been, in theory at least, a process for exit. And that's what the UK is currently doing. It's invoked Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. And that gives a two-year room to negotiate what the post-EU future would look like. But that already has been extended once.
0: Yeah, and it always seems to be like, every time in the news you're seeing it, it's always, you know, extending that deadline. It
1: may indeed be that the result of the turbulence at the moment is that there will be another extension, although the current prime minister, and there's considerable doubt as to how long he will actually remain in office, but uh, the current prime minister, Boris Johnson, has very firmly stated that he will not ask for another extension of the Article 50 negotiation process
0: you mentioned Boris Johnson. So could you talk about why was there so much dissatisfaction with this European Union, which is meant to be something that promotes free trade, free movement of people, free movement of goods, all things that are boons to an economy? Why was there so much dissatisfaction with that within Britain itself? And how did that lead to some of these players getting involved, like Boris Johnson, like some of the other Brexit figures?
1: I I think if you're talking about the free movement of goods, uh, you're right that the view in Britain was overwhelmingly positive. It was positive about the movement of capital because the UK is a major financial center, uh, so a lot of European financial business was transacted in the city of London. But the UK, or a significant part of the UK population, didn't like the mobility of people within the European Union. And particularly in 2004, the British government, when um, there was a big extension of the European Union to Eastern Central Europe, the British government with Ireland and with Sweden, those were the only three countries that didn't impose transitional restrictions on migration. And the, it's clear that the British government at that time underestimated the number of people who would come From formerly communist countries in Eastern Europe, the largest number from Poland, but also Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, large numbers from all of those countries, as Bulgaria and Romania joined a bit later than Poland. But there was a big flow of people into the UK. Some Britons think that that's beneficial because the Polish nurses and doctors and cleaners and administrators helped to make the national health system operate. Other people, on the other hand, interpreted it as taking away their jobs or taking away their opportunities for promotion or reducing their wage levels because of the effect of labor competition. And so the migration issue became a central element in the lead up to the 2016 referendum. And although I think some intellectuals, many politicians argued about the sovereignty issue and about taking back control, for most voters, The question was about migration, and the answer that they gave was a very narrow vote that they wanted to leave the EU because they thought that the EU had flooded Britain with too many people. So if you like, uh, we're obviously talking in the United States, there are very, very strong parallels uh, to the anti-immigration elements of Donald Trump's electoral campaign in 2016. And indeed, Donald Trump, I think got a lot of momentum out of the fact that the british had already gone for brexit in the summer of 2016
0: you mentioned boris johnson and the fact that he won't extend the deadlines for negotiating the brexit deals what is the consequence of of a no deal brexit
1: nobody and i think that includes the uk government really knows what the consequences will be there will undoubtedly be some difficulties in moving goods Right at the beginning, many people have suggested, for instance, that there will be much, much lengthier waiting times to cross between the UK and continental Europe, in particular to cross through the Channel Tunnel between Britain and France, and that the result will be just a fantastic traffic jam um, that would extend very, very quickly back into central London. Um, I, I, I really don't know w- whether that will be implemented it's difficult to imagine that people would put up with that degree of dislocation. And that would involve, for instance, hospitals not getting essential medicines, pharmacies not getting medicines, some kinds of industrial products not coming through. You know how the world economy today is really linked together with incredibly complicated production chains, that we don't really have a product that's just made in one country. The components are made in one place and then shipped somewhere else and then shipped again somewhere else after that. And Brexit is going to disrupt those those channels very significantly. Some time ago, it's quite a time now, the airport in Hong Kong moved from the old airport to a newly constructed site. And right at the beginning of that move, there were some components that were exported from Hong Kong to the United States they couldn't be shipped and so production in the midwest shut down because of the fact that a hong kong airport was moving and if you think about the disruption that brexit is going to cause a non-negotiated no deal brexit it looks as if it might be at least significantly more important for the rest of the world economy than just moving a hong kong airport
0: yeah and that brings up the question of you know what happens to these to the businesses who are you know obviously producing goods and selling them what happens to them when, you know, once Brexit happens and they're outside of the EU? What will that do to businesses? And I'm really trying to get at tariffs, you know, are, are they going to be put in place and will that be more costly on, on the businesses and consumers?
1: Yes, indeed, that's, that's correct. That the European Union, for instance, has an external tariff on automobiles. It's about 10%. So they buy American products and they buy American cars, they have to pay the 10%, but that doesn't deter Europeans from buying products from the United States just because there's a tariff.
0: I know that with Brexit, right? I want to know what that'll do to to investment coming in. So how will foreign investors as well as domestic investors react to all this news with the businesses?
1: Investors have already reacted. The uncertainty over the last three years, since the referendum in June 2016, has meant a considerable decline of investment in the UK while people wait for an outcome. And So some people will suggest uh, if there is a Brexit or if there isn't a Brexit, investment will pick up because there's a kind of backlog that's accumulated. Uh, British companies have just not been investing uh, over the last few years. People who are optimistic about Brexit will say, well, you know, it's the uncertainty that's really paralyzing at the moment, and once we get over that, uh, things will be better. I, I, I think there may be a case like that, but the uncertainty is going to last for a considerable period of time, because having no deal when you go out of the European Union means simply that you have to negotiate afterwards, and so there will be still endless negotiations. Um, it's like really uh, some people make the comparison with very very messy divorces where there are children and property and so on involved you can't simply walk away from a mess like that uh, you're continually sucked into it for years and years to come and i think that that will also be part of the post brexit story in the united kingdom but also in the european union
0: we we kind of talked about this no deal brexit and how it's kind of like a worst case scenario and i want to talk about the best case scenario. So in your opinion, what would be the best case scenario for Brexit? The,
1: the previous Prime Minister negotiated a deal that was rejected three times in the Parliament in the House of Commons by the MPs. But it, it contained many aspects of a continuing relationship. And if something like that were put into place, there wouldn't be so much uncertainty. But The people who originally were in favor of Brexit um, believe that it isn't enough to satisfy their demands because it still allows a considerable amount of intervention of the European Union in British affairs. The only difference is that Britain no longer contributes to making European Union decisions. But if you're thinking of very, very complicated bits of trade standards, health and safety standards, the judicial arbitration of disputes, those would all still be handled on a European level. So the disruption would be less, but the gains in terms of sovereignty would not be there. And so some people who take that position will actually say that they prefer being still in the European Union rather than having a deal on Mrs. May's terms, which is described sometimes uh, by the critics of Mrs. May's government as Brexit in name only.
0: Yeah, and I think the deal that Theresa May tried to sort out, that was known as the checkers deal, right?
1: Yes. All right. You know, the problem was that in Parliament, and it may reflect the division of opinion in the country at large, there was no majority for anything. There was no majority to stay in the European Union. There was no majority for a no deal. And there was no majority for the negotiated deal. So you you could really choose one of those three options. But if about a third of the population or a third of the MPs Support one but don't like the other two, then you're in an absolute stalemate. And in a sense, that's the predicament that has brought Britain into the political mess that we see at the moment.
0: That brings up another question of the fact that some people have made the argument that now that they have had that first referendum and we've kind of seen some of the potential effects of what a Brexit could do to the economy of Britain, why can't they just have another referendum? Could you kind of talk about that viewpoint? I think
1: many people. We're not sympathetic to that because what happens, for instance, if there's another vote, but it's a narrow vote in the other direction? So it was roughly 52 on one side and 48% on the other side uh, for Brexit in June 2016, supposing it's 52 and 48 the other direction. Does that mean that you continually have a referenda about this issue? I think many people, including in many of the European capitals, would think that that's a really dysfunctional outcome and they wouldn't want to see that happening. So there was some skepticism. The opinion has shifted probably. Uh, there are more people now who argue for a second referendum, which would have a clearer Statement of what the choices were because it wasn't clear, I think, to many people who voted in 2016 what exactly the consequences of leaving the EU would be. And in particular, it wasn't clear whether it would be with a negotiated deal, what kind of negotiated deal that would be, or whether there would be no negotiated deal at all. So, after an extended period over the last three years of discussing this, it might be a good idea to ask the people again, but then it would have to be a more complicated kind of question that is put. And referenda don't really lend themselves to asking very complicated questions. But I think you would have to give those three options. One, a specific deal for the post-EU future. Two, no deal at all. Or three, remaining in the EU. And then have some mechanism for transferring the vote between those three options so that you would get, in the end, a preference that reflected the wishes, the desires of the majority of British voters.
0: Yeah and I think one of the arguments against having a second referendum made by some citizens of Britain is that you know it's it's about democracy this time it's really about it's the will of the people and they voted in 2016 to have Britain exit even though it might not have been as educated of a decision as it should probably have been
1: right but but you know you might say You know, in the 1970s, there had also been a referendum. The membership of the European community, the predecessor of the European Union, was negotiated by a conservative government. The Labour Party that came in afterwards was divided about Europe. Some people were in favor, some were against. And Labour had a referendum, which was producing then a really massive vote in favor of membership of the European Union. And that seemed to settle the European community. That seemed to settle the issue for the time being, at least. The problem is partly, I mean, there are a number of problems with the referendum that the 2016 referendum was really very, very badly thought out because there was no discussion of what happens if there's a narrow majority. For instance, you might say that You might require, in order to make a change in the status quo, not just a majority of actual voters, but a majority of all the possible voters. In other words, counting the people who don't go to the polling booths. And the second issue is that the United Kingdom has become more and more devolved since the 1990s. That is, that there's a great deal of regional autonomy for Northern Ireland, for Scotland, for Wales, and of the four parts of the UK, that is England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, of the four parts, two voted to remain in the European Union. Uh, Scotland voted to remain in the European Union and Northern Ireland voted to remain in the European Union, largely because of the way in which the European Union was seen as the key ingredient to the successful peace process that had been instituted in Northern Ireland since the 1990s.
0: So we've talked, uh, quite a bit about how Brexit impacts Britain, along with the U- UK on the four countries and that. But I'm curious to know what the effect of Brexit is on the rest of Europe, because, I mean, Britain is kind of, it, it's the largest country and has the largest economy of Europe. I think maybe Germany might be bigger, but...
1: Germany is indeed bigger. The UK is a very, very powerful economy, and particularly for the German export industry, German exports go in quite a large amount to the United Kingdom and the slowdown in Germany over the recent months has been quite spectacular and is attributable in part to the trade conflicts on the global stage, the trade conflicts between the European Union and the United States and the trade conflict between China and the United States, but it's also attributable in part to worries about what the trading relationship with the UK will be in the aftermath of
0: Brexit. So what's the effect of Brexit on on the rest of Europe? What kind of effect will it have?
1: I think it will be negative. really doubts that it's going to be negative. It will also, there's one country that's even more severely affected than Germany, that's Ireland, because of its geographic position, because of the intense amount of cross-border trade with Northern Ireland. And in practice, the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland has become one of the really big sticking points in the negotiations about the Brexit process.
0: Gotcha. So uh, I'm curious to know, so yeah, by no doubt, it's, it's going to be negative, obviously, because it's kind of taking away from that freedom of movement of capital, people, everything like that. My, my next question is, what kind of products and businesses would be resilient to, uh, to a Brexit?
1: It's possible that some kinds of financial services might be better off. And some institutions, hedge funds, for instance, had quite a large number of their owners, employees, managers, who were sympathetic to Brexit because they thought that getting out of the European Union would get out of an over-complex regulatory framework. On the other hand, the European Union has really quite a lot of clout, and I don't think likes to have the idea of a lightly regulated competitor just off its borders. And over recent years, also since the Brexit referendum, the European Union has been putting a lot of pressure on Switzerland. To be more compliant with European Union regulations, and I think the same pressure will come on the United Kingdom if it's to be have access to European markets.
0: I also want to, because a lot of our listeners are, are students. I wanted to talk a little bit about the currency markets of more more particularly the pound and the euro. So, could you kind of give a give us a quick primer on on currency movements and the dynamics of currency markets?
1: Well, the more uncertainty there has been about Brexit, the more sentiment has developed against the British pound. And so the pound has fallen quite significantly on the exchange markets. It fell immediately after the referendum, and it's been falling in the recent weeks because of the perception that the outcome will be a kind of no deal or a hard exit. You can see also immediately there is a sense of some kind of compromise, some kind of movement, the pound rebounds. It's, it's, I think, like the issue that we discussed before, that the uncertainty is pretty killing. If the uncertainty were ended in some way or another, you might get much more of a stabilisation. But at the moment, the sentiment on the markets is worry and concern about the economic and financial consequences of a no deal Brexit. And, you know, we've seen also just over the last days, increased global uncertainty. Brexit is one of the things, along with the China-U.S. trade conflict, that is feeding into a global uncertainty.
0: So that uncertainty obviously feeds into less demand for that currency, and that obviously drives down the price. And and then the other currency in question is is the euro. So how has that been impacted, and how has that, that currency moved based on the uncertainty?
1: The euro has uh, weakened significantly since the early stages of the euro crisis. But that's actually, from the point of view of many Europeans, desirable. It's probably an unintended consequence of the policies of the European Central Bank in the quantitative easing and bond purchase programs that the ECB has adopted. But it, it, it does also mean that the European currency at the moment is comparatively weak against the dollar. And from the perspective of the United States, some people, including the president, believe that this is a kind of unfair competition and that the Fed should do more to be like the ECB and to talk down the dollar to some extent.
0: So Harold used the term weak to describe the euro and the pound. But what does it mean when a currency is weaker? And why did Harold say that it's a good thing when a country's currency is weak? It starts with understanding that currencies are compared relative to each other. By itself, one US dollar is still worth one US dollar, but it may be worth a different amount in a different country with a different currency. So when Harold says that the euro is getting weaker relative to the US dollar, that means that one euro cannot buy as many US dollars as it did before. When one currency exchanges for less of another currency than it did before, then it has weakened. The exchange rate is the value of one currency in terms of another currency. For example, the exchange rate between the dollar and the euro on January 8th, 2020 is $1 to 0.9 euros. That means you can exchange $1 for 0.9 euros. For simplicity, the exchange rate is usually given as the amount of another currency that one unit of your currency can get. So, as I mentioned, $1 gets 0.9 euros, but 1 euro gets $1.10. There is a relationship between the two exchange rates because there is simply a proportion of one currency to another. To find the exchange rate of currency A to currency B, you just see how much of currency B that one unit of currency A can get you. And to find currency B to currency A's exchange rate, find out how much of currency A you can get with one unit of currency B. It's as simple as that. Perhaps it might have been the case that one euro could be exchanged for two dollars. But now, due to the uncertainty and poor economic situations in countries using the euro, perhaps the euro has weakened so that instead of exchanging for $2, one euro can only be exchanged for $1. One euro can only buy half as many US dollars as it could have before. But if the euro weakens to the dollar, that means the dollar strengthens relative to the euro, meaning the dollar can buy more euros than in the past. In the example we just used, if one euro used to exchange for $2, then proportionally, one dollar could exchange for half a euro. But when the euro weakens, so that one euro exchanges with one dollar, then again, proportionally, the dollar now strengthens to exchange for one euro rather than half a euro. That's actually good news for the economies using the euro and bad news for the economies using the US dollar. Why? Well, if you think about it, when the dollar strengthens from being worth half a euro to being worth one euro, the euro has essentially become cheaper to convert to previously cost 2 dollars to get 1 euro, whereas now it just costs 1 dollar. That means that goods and services in countries that use the euro are cheaper to buy relative to goods and services in your country, the US. Now instead of buying goods and services in the US, where the US dollar is used, more people with US dollars, which strengthened relative to the euro, could convert their dollars to euros and buy the cheaper goods and services in those countries using the euro. The buying of those goods and services leads to more imports from the euro economies to the US, which by definition means that the euro economies have exported more to the US and brought more money into their economies, therefore boosting it. In summary, a weaker currency means a cheaper currency, and people like to buy cheaper things, which causes them to convert their currency into the cheaper currency and buy the cheaper goods and services, and stimulate the cheaper currency's economy and the consumers and producers in it. That's why a weaker currency is often considered good for the economy of that nation. It's important to understand this concept because it's ever-present in negotiating trade with other countries and the dynamic of the global economy. Back to the conversation. And I can see why the, a cheaper euro would be also more desirable to, to the citizens.
1: It's boosted the export performance, undoubtedly.
0: Right, okay. So how should we sort of categorize... At a, at a more broad level, so should we view Brexit as a political event or as an economic event, or is it, or is it just so complex that it's both?
1: Well, it's it's primarily an event that's produced by politics. It's produced by the long history of the UK's rather strange, semi distant relationship with the continental Europeans. It exploded in the wake of the debt crisis, and, and at the moment, it poses a significant economic as well as political challenge to European stability, but also to global stability.
0: Yeah. So what, what kind of impact does Brexit have on, on globalization?
1: I think it's correctly seen as an element of deglobalization. It's pushing back against international connectedness, pushing back particularly against the flows of migration. Some of the advocates of Brexit, particularly in the more economically liberal bits of the Conservative Party, think that they might get a more global, more open Britain as a result of going for Brexit. But in my view, that's actually economically and politically illiterate, because you can't really globally integrate with countries a long, long distance away. There's an enormous literature that tells you that trade is linked to geography and to proximity. And so your closest trading relationship is inevitably going to be with countries that are close to you. And it's unrealistic, I think, to think that China or India will be able to replace Europe as the markets for British goods.
0: Right, and you talked about different trading partners, and the U.S. is obviously probably the, one of the bigger ones. What kind of role does, can the U.S. have on Brexit?
1: Well, the President of the United States has been very open about His preference for Brexit, he seems to want to weaken the European Union. He doesn't like the kind of non-national character of the European Union. The motivation may be quite complex. Other countries um, don't like the European Union. President Putin doesn't like the European Union. Putin and Trump have been cheerleaders uh, for the UK getting out. I think that fact in itself might suggest that there are reasons why getting out is not such a good idea for the people of the United Kingdom.
0: The president has, quite, has had quite a bit yeah. of
1: a... And he says, you know, there will be a great trade deal, but it's, it's unclear what that would be. Anyway, if there's a trade deal, it has to be passed by Congress. Congress has made it very, very clear that if something happens that endangers the peace process in Northern Ireland, it wouldn't find much sympathy in the United States or in the Congress. There are many Irish people, after all, in the United States who feel strongly about uh, the, the fortunes of Ireland. And uh, if Brexit is going to be really harmful to Ireland, which I think is, is, is a very likely effect, then the sympathy for this kind of trade deal is, is, is going to evaporate very quickly.
0: Would you say it's correct to categorize that the politicians who are arguing for Brexit are using the argument that it's, it's democratic, it's kind of what the people want, versus the people against Brexit who are saying it's going to be an economic catastrophe due to uncertainty and the actual potential ramifications. Would you say that's a, a good summary of what the both sides are arguing?
1: It is a kind of summary, uh, you know, people are going to spin it in different ways. You know, I think it's really problematical to say what the people want is really easily measured by something like a simple referendum on the 23rd of June 2016. What the people want is all about very, very complex choices. And on the whole, the British principle in the past is that you can't ask all the people all the time about all the choices. And so you leave that to Parliament, and Parliament the representatives of the people that are legitimate because they've been elected by their constituents, uh, they're in a position to see those arguments, to weigh the trade-offs and to make the calculations. In that sense, the the reliance by the pro-Brexit people on the idea of a popular referendum as the ultimate criterion for legitimacy is really counter to British constitutional practice, but it's also really counter to thinking about how in a complex, interrelated modern world, decisions have to be made.
0: It's, it's a very complex world, right?
1: Th- that's why we leave things to, to, to Congress or to Parliament.
0: As Harold mentioned earlier in the podcast, we recorded this episode in October of 2019. As I edit this in January of 2020, I want to give you guys an update on Brexit negotiations. If you've been paying attention to the news about Brexit, Then you know that in late December, a formal bill was introduced in Parliament called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, which is still making its rounds in the different parts of Parliament for approval. If all goes to plan, this bill will go through Parliament's legislative process and be passed into law, and the UK will finally leave the European Union on January 31st. Immediately the next day, February 1st, the post-EU transition period begins and Britain will begin negotiating trade with different countries and will have 11 months to figure out trade deals with all those different countries. Boris Johnson has said that he doesn't want to extend the post-EU transition period beyond December 2020, but there is uncertainty as to whether or not he can achieve his goal of figuring out all the trade deals he needs to make before that. By November 26, 2020, to be exact, is when the European Union needs a trade deal negotiated if it's to be implemented in the beginning of 2021. That's the update on Brexit as of mid-January 2020. Back to the conversation. Right. And as we're nearing the end of our discussion, I, I want to f- finish off with three questions, and I'll ask the first one now. So as a professor, you talk to students on a daily basis. What mistakes and misconceptions do you see them having as it relates to economics and economic history? What are those like, mistakes and misconceptions that students walking into your class have?
1: They come with with all kinds of different ideas, naturally, inevitably. I think many people instinctively feel that there's something bad about globalization and about international connectedness. And one of the things that I think you can really learn from looking at economic history is how these periods of global, global openness have actually produced considerable growth, considerable prosperity, and considerable political stability as well, and that it's the, the deglobalization episodes, the 1930s, most spectacularly, that are really catastrophic and that impose a big human cost as well. I think we're seeing that as governments flirt with deglobalization, we're gonna see more and more how high the costs are and i believe as an economic historian that i can help to affect that process by just telling a story about how high the costs were in the past
0: yeah and you're talking about globalization being this thing that's causing progress it goes to the idea that the idea that trade's mutually beneficial for all the parties involved
1: in it. I, I mean, I think that's, 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 that's fundamentally right, that trade, if it's based in a secure legal framework, is about a mutual benefit, and it's not a zero-sum game. What's happened over the last 10 years or so is that more and more people in the political world have tried to present trade as a, as a zero-sum game, where if one side benefits, the other side loses.
0: Yeah, and I guess the inherent nature of trade that it is not zero-sum, because both mm-hmm. sides are getting what they want. What advice do you have for, you know, teenagers and students? Many, you know, you teach them all day. What advice do you give them for understanding the complex economic world today?
1: I do think they they can do quite well by looking at historical episodes and, you know, not just to do with Britain and Europe, but uh, for instance, current rivalry between the United States and China, I think, replays some aspects of the rivalry between the United Kingdom and Germany in the 19th century. And so there are constantly things that strike a bell that look familiar when you look at history. And I do encourage people to do exactly that exercise, uh, look and think about the past and think what went wrong in the past as
0: well. History may not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And that's certainly true with finance. I think that's very much true with the market fluctuations and the bubbles and periods of extreme growth. Right. Like History doesn't repeat itself, but it will, it will rhyme and it's obviously worth taking a look at past to figure out how to deal with the present.
1: I think that's just right. Yes, absolutely.
0: And I asked this question, this is my final question. And I asked this question of every guest I've had. And the question is like, knowing what you know now about finance and economics, what lessons, I read that you had three kids online. So what lessons have you taught your kids about the world of money?
1: Well, I think the the best thing that they can do is to invest in their own human capital. In other words, to work and to think and to be around creative people. That's a way to enjoy yourself, but it's also the way of building a better and more stable
0: society. I couldn't agree more with that, Dr. James. Thank you so much for being on. I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to talking to you in the future.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Rohan.
0: Hey, guys. I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. Please give us your thoughts and feedback on today's episode, what you liked, disliked, and what we could do better. Once again, thanks to Dr. Harold James for the amazing breakdown today. I hope you understand the complexities of Brexit in a more simplified way. Once again, we are really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email streetfins at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content and to subscribe to our newsletter. Join the Streetfins community and follow us on social media, links in the description, and share us with your friends so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.